bless you as you give. And without further ado, Rick, you absolutely blew our socks off last night. Come on up, this father of the faith. We honor you and we love you, man. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Is that the original pulpit that was in here over there? In the corner? A baby baptism. I thought it was some kind of spaceship. Oh, that's too bad. If you had an elevator going up to them, that would have been... No, that's a cool place. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> I just would like to mention one thing. Uh, we've got a Morning Star cruise uh, to Israel and different places in the Middle East this October, if any of you are interested. And uh, it's going to be on the Silhouette, which is the number one rated ship in the Mediterranean. And uh, we'll have several days in Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Tel Aviv, Caesarea. Then we go to the island of Rhodes. Then we go to Athens. We go to Rome. We go to, it's a very uh, cool trip. If you'd like to go, it's, I think it starts at around $4,000, which includes your airfare from New York. If I'm not mistaken, or Charlotte, you know, which is uh, another major city, if you haven't heard of it. And uh, <clears throat> but anyway, if you're interested, go to our website, MorningStarMinistries.org, and just look under events. Uh, we're only taking 150 people, so you better sign up fast if you want to go. And uh, but I think it's going to be an extraordinary time. We're going to have a lot of time together on the ship, and we want to get bonded somewhat before we even go, where we really start connecting with the people going. And uh, we do want to hear from God about some things on this trip. So, my uh, message this morning is to infinity and beyond. Okay, you remember old Buzz Lightyear? And, uh, but we've got something better than that. You know, I've really had trouble finding anywhere that the Lord put a limit on what we could do and where we could go in Him. And uh, He said that even the things that He did and even greater things could we do. And um, now we all have a definition of what those greater things may be. And I think it is a we rather than I. You know, uh, I see people, many, I know many people with extraordinary gifts of healing, and uh, they all seem to specialize in an area. Now, God may use them to heal other things, but they'll ten, tend to have tremendous faith and increasing faith for one thing, back problems. Could be cancer, could be whatever, you know, and it is, we do have to understand, as we come together, we have the mind of Christ. You know, uh, but there's people that specialize in prophetic gifts. And uh, I know people that have tremendous, uh, you know, ministry, personal ministry to people. I know others that have uh, gifts that are more focused on churches or movements, nations. And uh, I used to move pretty good in the personal ministry when I received a choice. He said, the Lord said, you can either see the forest or the trees, but
but you can't see both very well. You know, you, you have to choose. Now, that was me. Other people may be able to do both very well. But there was a point where he said, do you want to see other things, bigger things, or, uh, or focus on individuals? I, I chose, I, I wanted to see the big picture more. But every now and then that personal word kicks in. And I get words of knowledge for people and things like that. I just don't know how to turn the switch on and off. I have friends that have the switch on all the time. And I appreciate that. But uh, even so, I've gone twice, I've gone seven years with n virtually no prophetic revelation. And I treasured those seven years. That's when I think I sank my roots much deeper into understanding things that I would need to understand for the download that came at the end of those seven years, which I would not have understood, comprehended, if I had not had that research and that study. And uh, I do think we must study to show ourselves approved unto God. We have to prepare. I, we have a mentality that the Lord's just going to open our minds and dump it in there. And uh, occasionally he does, but that's pretty rare. It usually goes to those who are seekers, those who are searching and researching. But we have three questions I try to operate on. And I, I got this from Colonel Moore. If you ever read the book or saw the movie, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, played by Mel Gibson, a true story in Vietnam. Uh, first major American force to engage with a major North Vietnamese force. Colonel Moore commanded the American uh, forces in that battle. Well, he almost got court-martialed after the battle. Uh, when they were debriefing the American soldiers they, uh, that were in the battle, just to better understand the you know, tactics and strategies of the North Vietnamese and how they should counter them, they kept hearing that during the height of the battle, Colonel Moore was sleeping, leaning up against a big termite mound. So they were going to court-martial him for dereliction of duty. Heck, you can't go to sleep as the commander at the height of the battle. So they called him in to tell him, and he said, I wasn't sleeping. They said, what were you doing? He said, I was trying to answer three questions. He said, what questions? He said, what is happening? What is not happening? And what can I do about it? And he was just trying to tune out all the clamor and all the clutter to answer these three questions. He needed to know what was happening. He needed to know what was not happening so he wouldn't waste his forces or resources defending something where they weren't attacking. He needed to get clear on that. But he also needed to understand what resources do I have to counter this or to impact. Now, we use this. You know, by the way, they wrote this into the U.S. Army manual manual after that. This is what you ask in a crisis. And you know the same word for crisis is used for the, the word opportunity in one of the Chinese dialects. Every crisis is an opportunity. And uh, Paul, the way Paul put it in Acts 14.22, he said, through many tribulations shall we enter the kingdom of God. So in every trial or tribulation, there's a gateway to the kingdom.
And if we were smart, if we were wise, in every trial, we would start looking for that doorway to the kingdom. Because it's impossible for the devil to get a shot in while God isn't looking. So the Lord obviously has allowed this for a reason. What is his reason? He wants us to enter the kingdom in that area. Take ground in that area. So, you know, uh, you know, every trial that we face, and is anyone in here not going through any trials right now? I've never met anyone. I had someone raise their hand, and I was really curious to, to talk to this person one time. And sure enough, they had all kinds of trials. She misunderstood the question. It's part of life. But what, what would happen? How would our life change if we did what James said, count it all joy? And the bigger the trial, the bigger the opportunity. You can't have a big victory without a big battle. You know, so um, if we really believe that he's going to cause all things to work together for good, we will get excited about our trials. Where's the door? Where's the door? One thing Francis Frangipan used to teach, you never fail one of God's tests. You just keep taking them until you pass. And uh, I don't know about you, I'm tired of taking the same ones over and over. But he gives them to us for the same reason that you take tests in school, so you can be promoted, so you can go to the next level. And you know what your reward is for passing a test? You get another bigger test. But we're here for this. You know, this life is about training for reigning. And we're still looking for what's here, what we're going to get here. and all. But listen, it's bigger than that. Once you see the city of God, the city that God is building, which I think every true sojourner, this is their vision. This is what they're in pursuit of. What God is building, not just man. Once you start to see that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all so wealthy they made kings jealous. They intimidated kings, but they were willing to live in tents. They could have built the nicest palaces maybe in the world. They said, we don't need that. They were not living for what's here. This life is a vapor, and it goes really fast. But we've got to start living for eternity. And if you live for eternity, you see for eternity, and not just this life, I think you can do what Abraham did. Take his, even his promise from God and willingly sacrifice the promise because he knew he had his son for eternity. And he knew his son was a type of the coming Messiah. That's why he made him carry the wood for his own sacrifice. He said, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. I think, and Jesus confirmed that. He said, your father Abraham desired to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And when you see the Lord's day, you'll gladly sacrifice anything in this life for the eternal purposes of Christ. And that's the way the patriarchs lived. Yeah, tents, all I need here. You know, and uh, what would happen 
if we, like them, start living for the age to come. That became our vision. That became our purpose. I think more and more we would start living in the age to come. We would start living by the power of the age to come. That's a part of that entering that door that is open in heaven, that place of access. Revelation 4, the door that stands open, and I don't see anywhere that it's ever been closed. But I think this year you're going to see a lot more people entering that door. And I'm just throwing this out. We can enter it at will. And every one of us right now are as close to God as we want to be. We seek him, we'll find him. We draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. Now I'm preaching to the choir. Anybody get up this early and come out in this cold? You're hungry. You're after God. There's no, I have no question about that. And, uh, but you know, Jake, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. That's what he told Nathaniel when Nathaniel was impressed by one word of knowledge. I saw you under the fig tree. Lord said, you're going to see something better than that. You're going to see the messengers of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And it is that progressive revelation of who he is by which we enter, by which we ascend. And in Hebrews 6.1, when it talks about the basic doctrines of the faith, when it says leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ and going on to maturity, he doesn't mean we leave the teachings about the Christ. We leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to the more advanced teachings of Christ. It's all about him seeing him and being changed into his image and growing up in all things into him. We're told in Ephesians, the ultimate conclusion of all things, everything is going to be summed up in him. He is the ultimate purpose of God, and he is the ultimate purpose God has for us. You want to know your purpose? Be conformed to the image of Christ. You want to understand your trials? Just look at them in view of how they're changing you into his image how they're being used to change you. And you know, one of the basic, you know, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything that happened to Israel in the wilderness talks about how they were baptized in the water and in the the cloud and all this. And and then it goes on to say in verse 11, those things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come because everything they went through as a type in the wilderness, we have to go through. And uh, we will go through every one of those trials. Now, they left Egypt a great mixed multitude or a mob. Think about this. Before they got to the Red Sea, they were marching in martial array. One thing we've got to get, God is a martial God. He calls himself that. He calls himself Lord of hosts or Lord of armies over 10 times more than all of his other titles. He is a military leader. He says, I am a warrior. There's a saying in the military, there are soldiers and then there are warriors. Not everyone's a warrior. I mean, soldiers 
who are not warriors by nature can still do heroic things. They can, they're desperately needed because there are not many warriors. But the warriors, they thrive in the midst of battle. They were made for it. They run to the sound of battle, not away from it. But our God is a warrior. Jesus is the captain of the host. And uh, I think we have to take on certain aspects of his martial demeanor, his military demeanor. And uh, my last two books were about that, The Army of the Dawn, how this relates. Now, we're an army, we don't have carnal weapons. We're not supposed to. <laughs> Some of us do. <laughs> But you know what I'm talking about. We're not an army sent out to wound people and kill them or conquer them. We're sent out to heal them and set them free. You know, and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. It's the power of the truth, the power of love, the power of all the gifts of the Spirit and all the fruit of the Spirit. We have to, but there's still a martial mentality, I think we have, where I know in... Just a couple of ways this applies that we've got to get if we're going to get there from here or if we're going to get anywhere from here and not be the mob that we tend to be right now in the body of Christ. I know when I went in the military, you immediately, now I already had an assignment when I went in. I got a high enough score on the entry thing. I could choose what I wanted to do. But even if you didn't get that, you took a battery of tests as soon as you went in, and they knew exactly what you would be good at and what you wouldn't be good at, and you got assigned to that. And, uh, and then you went from, you know, basic training to the different schools or, or advanced training, whatever you were called to do. I was in the Navy, and I was in naval aviation, so most of our stuff, I went you know, had to do with airplanes and then how the airplanes relate to ships like aircraft carriers. But, um, you know, we talk about in Ephesians 4, we're not, you know, it says we're not going to get there without the equipping of the saints. And it goes on to talk about the proper functioning of each individual part. Most Christians don't even know their part. One thing we learned in the military, right away you knew what you were going to do. And you didn't just get taught. I think overall most of the ministry in the body of Christ right now is teaching oriented. You know, we mix in the gifts and all to minister to people, but most of what we do is teaching. And, um, you know, I was a flight instructor and I always started my students by teaching them, this is an airplane, these are the ailerons, these are, this is the airspeed indicator, you know, just basics on it. We would do that in a classroom. But then I would take them out. I would demonstrate, this is a takeoff, I demonstrated it. This is how you level off, this is how you keep your heading, you know, basic things like that. And then, next time, you do it. That's when training begins. How many of you would like to get in our airline Sometime to go somewhere and you look up and the pilot's sitting up there and say, wow, how long you been doing this? They said, well, you know, I've never really done it before, but I've read a lot of books on it. I think I'm going to be good. 
<laughs> you know, how many of you would like that? You know, equipping was level three. We got taught, then we got trained, then we got equipped. That was when you got your weapon. If you're infantry, you get a rifle. If you're artillery, you're assigned to a gun. You know, if my case, you know, we get assigned to things related to the airplane uh, and the squadron. There, But everybody knew their place. You knew it when you got to the fleet. You had a place. And you had to do your job. And uh, But there was no confusion about that. We've got to get there in the body of Christ. But even that, there, after being equipped, there was deployment. That's when you go to the fleet. That's when you go to the, the army or, or to the, uh, you know, whatever regiment or company or whatever you were assigned to in the and you did your part. You knew your part. I'm just saying, I think we've got to move from being so teaching-oriented to where there's teaching and then training. What does that look like? And then we've got to also discern where everybody's called to be in this thing and get them taught and trained and equipped in those areas and then deployed. So we're a functioning body. If you don't function in what you're called to, you're going to get atrophied. And we're basically keeping people alive who are on life support. Give them just enough food to keep them alive, but they're not really functioning. They're not really doing anything but consuming. I'm just saying. How are we going to get to being the military, the marshal, we're called to be, and I'm just throwing that out because I've got a lot of ideas. That's what you know, read my books, that's why I wrote the books. And I've put together a lot of these things with friends who were military leaders and and uh and seeing how it applied to us, the body of Christ, and trying and getting to where we need to be to be the force we're called to be. And uh, but then after the Lord had a marching and martial array. You know, of course, the Red Sea was a major test. Baptism, what does that represent? The first thing, you can dunk somebody in the water a hundred times, a thousand times. It doesn't mean they're living the truth of that reality of baptism. All of the rituals are meant to be reminders of what we're supposed to be living in our life. Paul said, I die daily. We uh, no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. But it's a commitment to do that. Now, the baptism itself does not save you. We're told that by Peter. That it's not the water that saves us. It's that that reminds us of the baptism we're called to. The baptism we're called to is what Jesus was talking about when James and uh, John came to him and said, can we sit on your right hand and left? He said, I don't know, you qualified? Can you partake of the baptism I'm about to undergo? And he wasn't talking about being dunked in some water. He was talking about the cross. So uh, now the baptism is important, just like I think a wedding is important. I think we should make big deals out of a wedding because it is such a major commitment. 
But a wedding is not the marriage. And baptism, just having been baptized, is not, that's a commitment to live a life of the cross, of sacrifice for the Lord. And then, you know, after that baptism, by the way, that baptism, that Red Sea baptism was the one place Satan could not follow. Do you want to get free of the harassment of the devil? Die. That's all it takes. Lay down your life for Christ. No longer live for yourself, live for him. He can't follow you there. It's the one place it will destroy his works in your life. If you will walk the life of that baptism. Have you ever thought about how the two most powerful beings in the whole world are trying to kill you? You know, one of them's going to get the job done. And there's some advantages to letting Satan kill you. I mean, if he does it, he'll at least usually let you get even with people. And that feels really good. And there are disadvantages to letting Christ kill you with the cross, taking up the cross. You know, you know what he'll do? He'll make you forgive your enemies. And if anything could be worse than that, he'll use that to get them saved, and then you have to spend eternity with them. So count the cost. But guess what? <clears throat> you know, they say the statistics reveal that the mortality rate hovers somewhere around 100%. Isn't that encouraging? We're all going to die. But I think if we've died daily, that last step is going to be the most glorious one we could ever imagine. There won't be any fear. There'll be excitement. We'll be thrilled for it. Can't wait to get there. We want to build a hospice that is so awesome people can't wait to get there. It's gateway to heaven. Gateway. You're almost there. Come on. You're at the finish line. But you know, if we would have the pure fear of the Lord, we wouldn't have to fear anything else on this earth, including death. And fear is how Satan binds us. That's why he's trying to put the whole world under fear, terror, fear, everything to control people. But if we have the pure fear of the Lord, we don't have to fear anything else. We won't fear anything else. That's why he talks about, you know, don't worry about the conspiracies there in Isaiah. He's, don't worry about all that stuff. He said, when the Lord becomes your fear and he becomes your dread, then he will become a sanctuary. And there is no greater sanctuary we can have than being in him. So we don't have to fear all these things other people fear. And if we are, there's something out of whack in our life. There's something wrong. But then there's another trial. And I think this is a critical one. Remember, they went three days without water. Now, have you ever gone a whole day without any liquids? You think fasting is tough. I mean, it's, it's you know, 
I've tried it. I can't even comprehend three days. I mean, I can't imagine what that's like. But then think about doing it in the desert. Two million people kicking up dust. I mean, I can't, this is a trial beyond anything I can imagine. And then you see water. I, I mean, the joy, the excitement, the finally, I mean, the, we're about to get our thirst quenched, you know. I mean, it probably went to the greatest excitement they'd ever had. And then the water's poison. They can't drink it. Now, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have all the testimonies. They knew God was powerful. They didn't know he was good. They didn't know his nature. and I could really understand them thinking, he just brought us out here to play with us, toy with us, kill us. But what did they do? Remember Moses took a tree and threw it in the water and turned the bitter waters into sweet. What does a tree always represent? The cross. The cross. Now, the point is, The first test, if we're going to make it across this wilderness to get to our promised land, and I have never had a promise from God that did not have a wilderness I had to go through to to walk in it. And that wilderness is usually the exact opposite of what you've been promised. They were promised a land flowing with milk and honey. There's not even any water there. And a lot of people get discouraged. They want to go back to Egypt, just like, and many do. Many fall away at that point. And, uh, but if we're going to make it, the first thing we've got to do is turn every bitter thing that's happened in our life into sweetness by taking it to the cross. And seeing God's purpose in it, I don't care how bad it was. I don't care how bad it was. We have to do that. You know, the priest in the Old Testament could not have scabs. Of course, we know everything written then was written for our instruction, which to me says, you know, a scab is an unhealed wound. He's saying you cannot have any unhealed wound and walk in the priesthood. That will disqualify you from the priesthood. If someone has unhealed wounds, you can't touch them. You can't get close to them. And you can't be that way if you're a priest. And besides, every bad thing that happened to us was designed by God for our good, but also to give us authority. Wasn't by his stripes that we're healed? Very place he was wounded, the most unjust wounds there will ever be. No one ever deserved it less than Jesus. But it says, by his stripes, we are healed. Very place he was wounded, he received authority for healing us. And that same principle works for us. In the same place that you have been wounded, you can receive authority for healing others of those same wounds. Don't waste your trials. But we can't let them be negatives in our life. We cannot allow them. They will rob us of our life. 
Two things, you know, self-pity and the victim mentality, I think, are the main two thieves of people's lives, their callings, their purpose. I don't care how unjust it was. The more unjust it was, the greater the authority you can carry. But we've got to overcome it. We've got to get healed of those things. We can't walk around with unhealed wounds. And we're going to get wounded all the time in this life. We've got to learn to get healed quick. Get back in the fight. Get back in the fight. So, <clears throat> but, you know, this principle, I, you know, I long ago, decades ago, ceased to be impressed by people's personal prophecies. I heard a prophetic friend, one guy who I think may have one of the greatest emerging prophetic gifts now, say he thought that 98% of the prophecies that he gave to people would never come to pass. But he believes they were true words from God. He, but they're invitations. He said not many people will go on to make their calling and election sure. They just think it's going to happen to me. God said it. No, it's a calling. When Paul received a calling, he wasn't immediately an apostle because he was called as an apostle. He went through years, somewhere between 11 and 14 years in the wilderness, searching out the things of God, pursuing, making his calling and election sure so that he'd be ready when the commission came. So who is it? You know, I... Look at that as a biblical principle. I mean, Joseph receives this dream. The sun, the moon, and the stars are going to bow down to him. Next thing he knows, he's a slave. It was the opposite. Then that's not low enough. He's put in prison. I bet he sat down many nights thinking, where did that dream come from? But he had to go through a wilderness to get there. King David. Samuel comes, pours oil on him, says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Then for the next few years, the people he's supposed to be king over are chasing him, trying to kill him. He's having to live in caves. It was the opposite. I bet the next time he saw Samuel, he said, you stay away from me with that oil. When I see people running here and there trying to get words, I think they're crazy. And give me one at a time. One at a time. I remember when I was a new Christian, I learned that easy. Man, I was, you know, uh, anyway, this was obviously before my marriage. I was a brand new Christian, and I had this redhead that I knew was God's will for my life. Unbelievable. Very refined. You've seen her in magazines since, but... Uh, anyway, I just knew this is the will of God in my life, for sure. And this guy came to town, and he was called an apostle. I had no clue what that was, but it sounded important, so I wanted to go see this guy. And, uh, and anyway, that's when I also learned about the laying on of hands. He walked across the room, spotted me, walked across the room, and... Gave me all these words, and uh, 
and I knew the wilderness, the squirrel knew the wilderness, this is going to mean that was the end of my relationship. <clears throat> I tell you, next time that guy came to town, I saw him looking at me, and I started dodging him. <laughs> I started. And finally, when he was doing laying hands and praying for people at the end of the service, I was lining them up for him. I was going to use it all up so he couldn't get, get me again. <laughs> and then that's when I learned again. He laid hands on me, grabbed me, gave me another word, and was right back in the wilderness. I'm just saying. Okay, now I want to just touch on a couple of things and get, give this to Robin and see if he can fix it, all right? I'm going to tell you right front, I am so thankful for Donald Trump being our president. You know, I am so thankful. Uh, but I think it is a prophecy. And listen, he's got a lot of issues. There's no question about that. He has no problem. But I, I think if you look at the ones that the Lord called to be his personal disciples, his inner circle, they were, they were a whole lot like Donald Trump. I'm just saying. They were a bunch of cases. But the guy is a warrior. He's a fighter. His default is to fight. But I, I can tell you this. He is really rough on the outside. I tell people, if you've been to New York lately, he's one of the kinder, gentler models. <laughs> I'm just saying. <clears throat> but anyway, I was in his office with him with a few guys, and I saw the tears roll up in his eyes. I mean, his, his lips were quivering. We started talking about how, you know, we can't hurt the immigrant families. We can't hurt the families and the children. The guy almost bawled about it. And he gave us instruction. I was on an ad hoc committee to develop an immigration policy. He said, look, he said, we've got to have everybody in here who we know who they are. They, we want legal people. We want to get everybody totally legal. He said, but we can't hurt the families. We can't hurt the kids. And, um, but he is kind of a soft. I'm just saying, you may not ever see it in public. And I think he's trying to hide it pretty good. But Lance Wall now, who's, do you guys know Lance? He's from this area, okay. And uh, he's part of our ministries. Uh, but Lance had this word about him being the 45th president, being like King Cyrus of Isaiah 45. And it says here, Isaiah 45, that Cyrus does not know the Lord. And I don't think, King, I don't think Trump has met the Lord yet. And, uh, and I, when I went up to meet with him, I uh, took uh, Sid Roth with me, and Sid was up there. Sid's a serious evangelist. He wants to get everybody saved, every waiter, every waitress, every taxi cab driver, and he usually does it. I mean, he usually does it, but he's, uh, he was, we were riding in my little plane up there, and he's going, we got to get him saved. We got to get him baptized in the Spirit. And I said, now, Sid, think about it for a minute. Do we want him saved yet? I mean, just think. Our next president's got to kick some butt. By the way, that's a scripture. 
said the Lord smote them in their hinder parts. <laughs> so you got to be a southerner to understand the scriptures right <laughs> in some cases. <clears throat> I remember saying, think about it. I don't know, maybe we don't. <laughs> you know, because you don't want him struggling with, should I turn the other cheek? to the Russians when they're bombing us. or No, you don't want to deal with that. But one thing we do, my, my point here is, now I, I do believe the guy's about to meet the Lord. I think it's going to be in the next few months. I, you see the activity of God in his life in a major way. And I'm talking about when you know that some have called him the hound of heaven is after somebody. You see that work, you know that person, they're, they're done. There's no way they can escape the Lord. He's after them. And you see that around Trump's life. So he's going to be had. And, uh, but even now, the first time I met, he had two things. I said, I wish I, I saw on many Christians. He had an incredible fear of the Lord. And uh, of the good kind. And he doesn't respect people because he's learned how to use them, manipulate them. He, he doesn't respect almost any people unless they're clergy. And he gets so humble around anybody who's a pastor or whatever. Did you see him when during the inauguration week? They said, now we're going to pray for the president. He jumped right up waiting for everybody to come lay hands on him. I mean, they were going, what are you doing? But he was waiting, come on, lay hands on me. And because uh, he's so used to people doing that to him, and now he thinks that's how you pray. And one of his campaign managers got fired because for several days, the Christians assigned to him, who he wanted to have access to him all the time, those who prayed for him, he hadn't seen them in several days. He asked where they were. And they were told this certain person had kept them, had just kind of shut them out. That guy got fired right then. And uh, that's the kind of access he wants Christians to have to him. And he really trusts the word of God, the prophetic word. And we're sitting in his office. It was kind of, it was only six of us, but it was a kind of chaotic meeting because they changed the agenda. And it just wasn't going too good. But I saw twice in there when I felt like something was said, was anointed, immediately he snapped to attention. Now, I've seen it since then. The anointing, when someone speaks under the anointed, it gets his attention with a sensitivity you rarely see in the body of Christ. And he didn't know what it is, but he will snap to attention. And, uh, and he really gets it. And we'll follow through. I'm just saying, I think we got the right guy there for these times. All right. But now, there's a lot of reasons why I think we need, but to me, if he is a Cyrus, the main thing that Cyrus did, and I don't want to go through all of this, but God says, so God raised up Cyrus. For three main purposes. For the sake of Jacob and Israel. Why is the Lord distinguished between Jacob and Israel? I think there are many Jews who are not in the land, but he still regards them. 
for his purpose. Um, that men, second purpose, that men might know that he is the only true God. That Jehovah is the only true God. I think we're going to see this demonstrate in a major way through this guy. And Cyrus declared this is the only true God. The God who is in Jerusalem. His temple. And then this is the point I want to get to with you. He was the one who commissioned Ezra to return and rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple of God that God may have a dwelling place among his people. I think we're in the times of Ezra again. I think we're in the times where, you know, um, we're going to see the dwelling place of God raised up. Not only did Cyrus commission them to do that, though, he gave them the resources to do it. Now, he gave them the cedars of Lebanon, all kinds of things. He said, take this from the king's portion. And, uh, and I think we're going to see this guy making the resources possible to do what needs to be done for God's purpose in these times. I'm just saying, okay? Um, I think there are a lot of parallels here. Just search it out, the things that Cyrus did. And I think this is a marker that our 45th president would be like Cyrus of Isaiah 45. And uh, I do believe that is a true, true word, and we're going to see these things happening. There's, uh, I think, to me, the next thing I look for, those who rise up with the heart of David and say, we just, we're never going to be fulfilled, we're never going to be satisfied until the Lord has a place to dwell. You're going to see that heart of David raised up and released and then I think we're going to see the prophets start prophesying. Now, I think we've had remarkable prophetic movements, prophetic things happen. Uh, I know I went through about two, almost three years. When it was almost daily, I'd sit down and say, man, this is getting better than the book of Acts. It's so incredible. It only lasted a short time. But we know that was a foretaste. What is coming again in the next wave is going to be even better. And, uh, but you see, when Ezra returned to rebuild the temple, they laid a foundation, then they went off to build their own houses. And I think that's kind of a parallel of where we are. When I, when I became a Christian in 1971, Everybody was talking about it's time to build the house of the Lord. And everybody had a vision of building his house, of a place for God to dwell. And then it was like, it all, including myself, it was like building our own ministries. And, um, and the work on the house of God in Jerusalem, it says the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased until the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied in the name of the God of Israel. I don't think the work is going to get finished until the prophets start prophesying again. Now, I think we need to study those words of Zechariah and Haggai. They are two of, I think, the most relevant books of our time. I think we need to understand Nehemiah, the other restoration, great restoration 
leader of that time, but Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah were there. And I think just this whole thing of Cyrus gives us a marker. I don't care what you think of him politically. That's not the point here. There's something much greater than what goes on politically. And, uh, but where are those who live to see God have a house? Who are going to raise up the, the worshipers like David did? He had thousands, full time. Their whole job was just worshiping the Lord. He fought the battles of the Lord. It was only David that, not until David, that they fully take all of the promised land that had been promised to him. But David also had to go through that wilderness. There's a saying, you know, if there's a Goliath in front of you, it's because there's a David inside of you. But I would also say, if there's a Saul over you, it's because God is trying to prepare the David inside of you. And... uh, you know, anyone that I've ever known that is called to high-level leadership, influence, they go through the most severe discipline. And it's usually a serious Saul-type person in their life. And I don't think David would have been who he became without Saul. And the train he received under Saul. But how did David respond? Remember when even the Lord said, David, I'm going to deliver your enemy into your hand. You can do anything you want to him. And then when it happens in the cave. And David's hiding in the cave. And Saul comes in to relieve himself. And David's right there. And even David's men said, this is the fulfillment of the word that was spoken to you. Arise, kill your enemy. And David just reached up and cut off the edge of his robe, and then his heart smote him for that. And he goes out, and what does David, what does he call Saul? He says, my father. My father. And David honored him his whole life. When he died, you know, and it was the, the uh, tradition of the kings of the time, when you became king, the first thing you did was kill any potential rival, which to David, the whole house of Saul would have been. David's of a different spirit. He finds them in order to honor them and take care of them for the sake of their father, who had been so unjust to him. Now, Remember we talked a little bit last night about the one, the only commandment with a promise, and it's Old and New Testament, honor your fathers and mothers. It doesn't say your great fathers and mothers. It doesn't even say your good ones. How many of you had a father? Least half. We may not even know our father. I think we've got to honor them. What was Elisha told when um, Elijah asked him, 
He said, I'm about to be taken. What can I do for you? He said, I want twice the anointing you've got. Elijah says, okay. If you see me when I'm taken, you'll receive it. And then he tries to ditch him. I don't think Elijah even liked Elisha. He's probably saying, you arrogant little punk, you think you can even handle half of what I've got? You want twice as much? Are you crazy? He tries to ditch him. But what did Elisha say when he saw Elijah being taken? Now, Elijah didn't say, if you see me being taken, you'll receive it. He said, if you see me when I'm taken. What does Elisha say? My father, my father. You could make a good argument. Elijah wasn't a very good one. And uh, not very loving, not very, but Elisha honored him and he received it. The mantle fell. So I'm just, this one thing, I think honoring our founding fathers is critical for us. Guess what? They did some bad things. Find anybody in history or scripture didn't do some bad stuff except Jesus. Look at stuff King David did. But, uh, but we've got to find that place of honor. Honoring our fathers and mothers. Being in a place like this, do everything you can to honor. I would dig those wells, their teachings, what happened here, what happened in the, the Great Awakenings. And, uh, and there are a lot of things about the Great Awakening leaders. I tell you, you don't want to dig too far into Finney's life. But they were still used in remarkable ways. And uh, I think that's one of the things we've got to do. If it's going to go well with us, that's the promise. And we're going to have longevity. So, and I think a lot of that will help heal some of the wounds. You know, why is it in Malachi, restore the hearts of the fathers to the children? Why doesn't it say anything about the mothers? Most mothers don't have, the kids don't have problems with their mothers. It's with their fathers. Fathers are edgy, mean battle axes. And that because for most of history, they had to fight every day. They had to defend their families. They had to provide. They had to, and there was just an edge to them. And uh, I'm just saying, he doesn't say honor the perfect ones. Or even the good ones. But I think one of the things that could release more in us and enable God to trust us. How, would, how is it King David established a throne or a seat of authority? Says even Jesus is seated upon it. I think it's because he so honored Saul. In spite of the injustice. If you had really bad parents, that's a greater opportunity for you. It may be deeper wounds, but you can receive greater authority for doing that. We've got to get healed of our wounds. And that's what I want to pray for you. Just, Lord, I ask you for all these hungry people that would come out in this weather and on a Saturday morning and hungry after you. Lord, I ask you to illuminate anything that has let bitterness creep into our life. Lord, we ask you for your illumination we ask you for you to give us the wisdom and help us to apply the cross to that 
part of our life to receive the authority you want us to have to heal others of these same things. Lord, I ask you to turn every wound, everyone who's been wounded into a healer and go about doing your good work of healing and restoration. Lord, I just want to thank you for the great fathers and the faith, the great fathers of our country that came from this region that uh, did so much to lay such a great foundation for such a great country. And we thank you for our fathers and mothers in all the European countries and all the other Asian countries that sent people here to help fashion our country into who we're, we've been called to be. Lord, thank you for the fathers and mothers. Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to see them and give us the wisdom and understand how we can honor them. And by that, honor the Father, our Father in heaven. Lord, thank you for our fathers. Thank you for all the fathers and mothers in this room. And Lord, I ask you for healing of all relationships with all children. I ask you for that anointing of Malachi. Restore the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And Lord, we ask to the mothers in any way that that is. Lord, restore our children and our children's children and us to our fathers and mothers. Let us make the connection, even if they're not here anymore. Help us to do it in a way that would make a connection and healing could flow through our families to every generation. You said you're not just the God of Abraham or just the God of Isaac, or just the God of Jacob. You're the God of every generation. And Lord, we thank you for that. Heal these generations and make healers out of everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. So much for the hug there. <laughs> yes, thank you, Lord, for Rick. Why don't we do this? Why don't we stand up and um, shake out the posterior absence of blood flow and say something really nice to somebody, even if it hurts? Okay, why don't we ease on back in. So great to be up here in the balmy northeast. Every time Rick mentioned the weather, I thought, well, these folks up here just think this is normal. <laughs> we left the 70s. We've been having crazy warm weather at home and... uh So good, so good. Wasn't it good? Yeah. I worked with him. Uh, I was on the team at Morningstar for 14 years, and um, the Lord had uh, 
been speaking to me about a new assignment, and um, I told Rick, I said, Rick, I think I'm supposed to go start this work, and uh, he said, yeah, I, I knew two years ago you were leaving, so I have a church at home, mostly millennials, a lot of young people. John Mark McMillan, you know that song you sang? Um, the King of My Heart, he wrote that. Well, actually, his wife wrote it, and he wrote a little part, and they stick his name first. I don't know how that works, but he's a pretty tricky guy, I guess. But uh, one of the things the Lord's been speaking to me about probably for the last six years in particular is this word hope. Let's say that together, hope, hope. They said it twice. Let's say it three times, hope. Good deal, man. And um, so I'm going to talk about a prophetic encounter I had about six years ago. And actually, um, I have a much more extensive um, form of the message on. A, I've got these flash drives that I bring now instead of um, CDs and DVDs. They look like business cards, but actually they're, they're power sticks or flash drives. You stick them in your computer. You can download the messages and... Um, on one, one of mine, which has this message and I think five videos that contain parts of it as well, um, I, I actually, this sets $40, but it's got um, five videos and 60 audio messages, you know, just about $300 worth of product on there. And, uh, but it's a much easier way to carry it, and it's, it's, if people really want it, it's a lot, a lot less expensive to get um, some of the stuff I've seen over the years. And so if you'd like that, that's back there as well. And a friend of mine made these posters, and I don't, I don't do such a great job selling stuff, but these posters are going to remind you somewhat of what we're talking about this morning. I have one here that says, God wrapped creation in hope to ensure its future. Great victories are fueled by great hope. So I've got a number of these. And um, one of my favorites, just a little phrase the Lord gave me, Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb because he didn't plan on using it for too long. <laughs> and uh, I thought later, and he left it in better condition than he found it. <laughs> right? Which is the way Jesus is. He leaves everybody in better condition than he finds them. And here's a great one. Love makes hope a verb. Love hopes all things. So if you're interested in those, they're down there. And if you're not interested in those, they're still down there. So moving right along. Okay, I also brought, um, I brought a baseball. You should say, why did you bring that baseball? I'm, I'm not sure. It's just sometimes just do this. No. Um, I played baseball for uh, the time I was nine years old until college. And um, in the middle of the night, and, and I played on good teams. I played on city championship team in, in high school. And, um, but in the night, uh, recently, the Lord, I woke up and the Lord reminded me about an episode that happened to me when I was 12 years old in Little League. And there's a real significant principle and point to this. 
I hit three home runs in one game. And this is, this is one, of the, uh, one of the balls the umpires gave me. And they were um, over-the-fence home runs, out of the park. Not a guy tripped and the ball fell in the creek or something. But uh, Now, here's the strange thing. Those are the only home runs I ever hit in 10 years. And I mean, it was off good pitching. These guys I played with in high school later, it wasn't just underhand softball stuff. I mean, it was, it was, it was you know, good league. What's the point? Here's the point. This is a token in my life that God can do anything he wants to do through anybody he wants to do it through at any time. And see, the idea behind a token is um, the token is a tangible uh, proof of a promise much bigger than the token that's intangible that's coming. And see, a lot of people in this room, if you're like most people, you need hope. Here's the crazy thing. I never hit one out before. I did hit one more. Yeah, I hit one in high school. In the 10th grade, I, I smacked a ball, and it went over the left fielder's head, and it rolled down that field, down on the next field, and I was so slow, slow I had to slide in at the plate. <laughs> they almost got me, but I don't count that one. That guy might have tripped and fell, I don't know. But anyway, God wants to do some amazing things with people, but we've lost hope. And one of the reasons we've lost hope is our hope is in our past and not in the Lord. In other words, I didn't have three home runs in my past. I didn't think I'd have them in my future. But God wants to do those kind of things. Well, one of the things I wanted to do is talk a little bit about an encounter I had in, uh, in a hotel room in the D.C. area a number of years ago. And... Um, let me read this verse. Actually, turn to Genesis 45. And we'll read verses 27 and 28. Actually, uh, 20, no, start at 20, 45, 25 through, through 28, because I think you put stuff up on that if you want to. That'd be good. Now, the background is Rick mentioned Joseph. Joseph is out of prison. For 22 years, he hadn't seen his family, hadn't seen his brothers, and suddenly they show up, starving to death, and through a process, he reveals himself to them, and he takes care of them. Now, here's an amazing thing. Jacob suffered for almost a quarter century with a broken heart, believing that Joseph had died. The only problem was he wasn't dead. Now that tells me something. Terrible feelings can come out of things that have never happened just because we're not thinking straight. Somebody needs to really like that idea. You know, if you talk, if you talk to Jacob, why is your heart broken? I lost my favorite child. He's dead. He's gone. Animals ate him. They brought me back his clothes. 
The only problem was that wasn't true. And so what, what we dwell on, what we allow in our minds can cause us to feel ways that are inaccurate. Matter of fact, when I think about hope and I think about despair or hopelessness, hopelessness is an illusion. Hopelessness is anything you believe that puts you into a place of hopelessness cannot be accurate based on the Word of God when Jesus says, you should know the truth and the truth should make you hopeless. Now, there are characteristics of believing what is actually true. Now, there's a bunch of stuff posing as true, but Psalm 91 talks about His truth. You've got to get His truth. I'm actually in the process of editing a final editor on a book called Hope Restored, and it goes into these ideas I'm going to present here this morning. But the reality is that hope was restored the moment the resurrected Jesus walked out of that borrowed tomb. Because there's nothing else God could do beyond that that has the capacity when it's perceived accurately to um, create in us a lifestyle of hope. You know, we talk a lot about faith, but faith is the substance of things. So you'll never have faith beyond your capacity to hope. Faith is the substance of Hope. And, and we, can, we, can, we can sort of major on trying to believe the right thing and even confess the right thing when underneath some of that is this underlying hopelessness that actually prohibits you from having that kind of faith that you wonder why you don't have because you've read the Bible, you've quoted the Word, you've done these things, but underneath it is this thing where Hey, man, you need hope. You need that legit hope. You need that resurrection hope. You need that Christ is alive hope. And I believe that's what the Lord's doing. When I say he's restoring hope, that would be the subjective aspect of God releasing into us what has already occurred through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, let me read these verses Joseph sends evidence back to Jacob that he's alive. And so we see this here in verse 25. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart did what? Stood still. He could have had a heart attack. Because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Let me read it this way. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. The next verse. Then Israel said, interesting, it's Jacob, 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 until hope's restored. And then it says, then that same person speaks, but they call him a different name. Then Israel said, it's enough. 
Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Those, those of us who speak at different times at different places, um, I don't know, I think this is probably true of Paul Keith and some others, you can, you can come under at times like a confusion or a cloud when you enter into uh, the weekend where you're supposed to be doing a conference or something and you, you get you be buffeted in your mind or challenged. And So I was... Uh, up in Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. I was getting ready to do this conference. And I thought, I was laying in the hotel room that night, and I thought, what in the world am I doing here? And what in the world do I have to say? So I was bristling with confidence. <laughs> But I realized I was under, um, was under some kind of an attack or uh, bumping up against some things that would rather I'd stayed at home. And so I thought, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to, although I was laying down, I thought, I'm not going to do this laying down. Actually, it was four in the morning when this began to develop. I thought, I'm going to quote Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, whose power no evil folk can withstand. I will say of the Lord, <laughs> He is my refuge, He is my fortress, my God. On Him will I lean and rely, and in Him will I confidently trust. For surely then He shall deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. You know, when your name's Robin, the snare of the fowler deliverance is a very great promise. Deliver me from the snare of the fowler, from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover me with his feathers, and under his wings I shall take refuge. His truth shall be my shield and buckler. That's about as much as I had by memory. How many of you felt a little power go out when I quoted this? You feel a little juice on those? So that's what happens when you begin to proclaim his truth. So I started feeling a little bit better. I felt the cloud lift a little bit, and I, I'm, I'm that guy, if once is good, twice is better. So I <laughs> thought, I think I'll take another lap. He that dwells, I was getting my, oh man, I was getting ready to swatch something by then. I was feeling a little feisty. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, whose power no either foe can withstand. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God. On him will I lean and rely. In him shall I confidently trust for. Surely then he shall deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Rakha shapa sando. Mokan bike. Urashaba. He shall cover me with his feathers and under his wings I shall take refuge. His truth shall be my shield and buckler. Oh, man, I was starting to feel a little feisty. I was thinking, whatever this thing is, is bit off more than he can chew. And I felt pretty chewed up at that point. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak enough of the Word of God for that thing just to spit me out. 
I'm not going to be palatable to that realm. When I get into this place with God, I know I can have. I took off my Clark Kent suit, put the big S on my chest. (laughs) I was feeling pretty good. So I'm laying in bed, and this is the weird part. Good weird. Look at somebody say, there's good weird, and there's bad weird. This is good weird. I looked up in the ceiling of the hotel room, and it looked like there was an air shaft open up there that I hadn't seen before. And, and I thought, if I, now I'm laying in bed, I thought, if I jump up in that air shaft, I'll get right into the heavens in a brand new way. Irrational thought. But encounters aren't really rational. And so I did. I jumped up through there. I never left the bed. You know, that's the way these encounters go. But whew, Man, I took off like a rocket. And as I went through the realm between where I was and where I was going, I heard these demonic people say, Hey, you can't do that. You can't come through here. And I laughed the whole way because I had that instinct. There was nothing they could do. I had broken through. I'd broken through. This was a breakthrough. I'd broken through. And... um Didn't even know how to do it. Didn't even know it was going to happen. Didn't know any of it. Just having an encounter with God and so grateful the presence of God came and gave me enough insight to battle against uh, the defeated foe that was acting like it was the victor when the victor was laying in bed feeling like the defeated foe. Well, the next thing I realized, I was in the heavens and it was in a in a sort of a dark place or a shadowy place. It wasn't, wasn't dark black like something bad, but I thought, wow, I thought a place would be a little brighter. But then I looked up and I realized I was under a huge wing. And, and sometimes I say it was 10 feet tall. Sometimes I say it was 14 feet tall. I couldn't. It was big. And I was under the shadow of the great eagle which I had just been proclaiming in Psalm 91. And I didn't figure that out automatically. It's amazing. The Bible means exactly what it says, and when we say it, it means exactly what it says, even when we're sort of dull and dumb to what we're actually saying. But God honors His Word. It's the most amazing thing how good God is. I did not know what I was doing. I did not know where I was. I did not know why I was there, and it turned out I had prophesied myself into that place. Anybody feeling some little hope? Oh. I was under the shadow of the Almighty, under the protective wing of the great eagle. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. I had quoted that twice in in an adversarial spiritual conflict. And then I began to see some pretty remarkable things. I was looking on the underside of the wing. Actually, at first I thought it was, must be an angel. I thought, but angels are white. Who knows? I mean, that's what we think. 
Why would it be brown? You know, there's a reorientation sometimes when the Lord comes. We have to reorient. It's just, it messes with our mind. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When the Lord touches you, you have to start seeing things a little differently. But when I looked underneath the wing there, there were, this is really strange, but I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> there were precious stones, gold, silver, and substance that would exude from this wing. They were not applied like applique. They, there was divine prosperous substance coming out from the eagle. I mean, like softball and baseball size precious stones. Some of them I didn't recognize. Precious metals, some of them I didn't recognize. But it was divine substance. Then I was commissioned to bring back what I understood to be five fully loaded wagons. Somebody say wagons. Wagons. What did we read over here? When Jacob saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, his heart revived. And see, the sense I got going through this was that the revelation on what these wagons were all about would be found in the story of the restoration of Jacob to his father, Joseph, uh, Joseph to his father, Jacob. And so the Lord began to show me these wagons that were so full, it's, it's interesting. You know, when you have some of these encounters, it's really like you're two places at the same time. You're still here in the world, but you're also there. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Paul said, whether in the body or out, I know not. And what was going on was those wagons in the heavens, I'm going to tell you what they were, but they were so full, I heard stuff falling out of the wagons in the heavens landing on the floor of my hotel room. I knew, I said this earlier, I just said, I knew the understanding was connected to this Genesis 45 restoration. The first time in the Bible the word revive is used is in this passage. You see, much of the church has been like Jacob, who believes his favorite son is dead when his favorite son is not only alive, He's the Lord of all. He's not only alive. He's the Lord of all. You know, Pharaoh actually, you know, we, we say Egypt's a type of the world, but it is a type of the world when it is a type of the world. But other times it's a type of heaven. In this category, it's the type of heaven. Joseph is a type of Jesus. Jacob is a type of the church. The church is hopeless because his Savior's dead. 
And so the Savior has to send things from heaven and words from heaven that when believed and perceived and being convinced of radically changes your viewpoint. Actually, Joseph is more uh, by type, more like Jesus than anybody in the whole, old, the whole Bible. Some, some scholars and theologians have found between 60 and 80 similarities between the two lives. How many of you want to know what those wagons were? The first one was a wagon of deliverance from deserved consequences and deserved circumstances. Let me repeat that. I don't, think, I don't think that got to you. There's this wagon you see that's so full, stuff has fallen out of it in heaven, landed in your bedroom right now. If you have ears to hear, you can hear it land. You don't have to do anything for it because it's undeserved. It's a wagon of deliverance from deserved circumstances and situations from consequences. You did the wrong thing. You may have even done it on purpose. Guess what? People don't want you delivered to that. They want you to get your just desserts, but God wants you to deliver it. That money you spent, you should have saved. That house you bought, you should have walked right by. I don't know, that car, those cars, whatever. Choices, decisions. People warned you, don't do that. He's not right for you. She won't treat you, whatever it is. We all have these things. Here's God's heart. I want to deliver you. I want to release you. I want to set you free. Come on, come on, come on. Who wants to praise into that thing? Woo, come on. My God. Paul, Dashabon, come, boom. Whoa, bam. Get you some of that right there. But I don't deserve it. That's the qualification. Light should go on. I mean, that's just one wagon. There's more where that came from. That might not even be the best one. I don't know. I'm getting a little cocky up here, so. Wagon number two. Wagon of deliverance from criticism and the critical spirit. I made some notes earlier. Criticism affects our identity. It imposes itself on us. It makes us into someone other than who God has intended for us to be.
Now, the problem is identity determines destiny. You won't get where you're going until you know who you are. Now, this is another hour message, but I'm just going to sling it out there. Jesus only used the name Peter very sparingly in the New Testament. Now, everybody else used it a lot. Jesus used it very little. One time, he actually doesn't even say Peter. He says Cephas. So there's one Cephas. Then there's three times he uses the term Peter. Then there's one time an angel uses it on Jesus' behalf. So you have those five times Jesus uses that name. Otherwise, it was Simon or Simon Barjona. Each time he was using that name, he was telling Peter who Peter was. He was revealing identity because Jesus knew if Peter didn't know who he was, he wouldn't know how to get where he was going. You don't know who you are, you don't know where you're going. You don't know how to become who you are if you don't know who that is yet. That's why there's a battle over identity. You see it in, in, in Luke Oh, we have this supernatural child. Heaven says his name's John. The family says name him after his daddy. Well, his daddy couldn't live up to his own name. Don't put that name on that boy. Put heaven's name on that boy. Put heaven's name on that boy. Don't ask, don't ask aunt and uncle. Don't ask family. Don't ask tribe. Heaven needs to name that boy. Name him John. And the truth of the matter was until they named him John, Zacharias couldn't speak. A lot of people have lost their voice because they don't use it. Oh, don't go there. I got a lot to say. You remember when uh, Jesus, the on this rock I'll build my church? Here's what I think went on. Jesus said, who am I? Now, Jesus knew who he was. Why was he asking them to tell him who he was? Because it was foundational for them to know who he was. And until they knew who he was, he couldn't completely tell them who they were. So here's how it went. Who am I? Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, yes, and you're Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. What rock? Well, the rock that when a man or a woman knows who Jesus is, and Jesus has reached that man or woman with who they are, no gate, no gate can keep you back. That's just a little stack. But the, here's, here's the process. Criticism stunts your identity. Identity determines your destiny. And being critical locks in that false, stunted identity. So we're going to pray at the end of the meeting here over that whole thing of people having been criticized to in turn are being critical. It's major. We, need, we really do need that, that deliverance. The third wagon was a wagon of hope. Um, there are two more after that I'll get to, but I need to tell you about this wagon of hope. 
I'm, I'm so glad the Lord just helps us and shows us things, aren't you? You know that we're, we're not on our own here. This was January the 28th, 2011. A man appeared to me in my bedroom, and when I looked up, he was looking at me right in the face with this big, big smile on his face. And he was standing on a newly paved road that went through my bedroom. And he had this big smile on his face. He said, hello, I'm going to be your new best friend. And it was a guy I hadn't seen since high school named Chip Hope. Big smile on his face. Hope saying to me, I'm going to be your new best friend. Had on a Philadelphia Eagles sweatshirt and a Philadelphia Eagles hat. Chip means Charles. Charles means free man. Free man hope. It's a picture of Jesus as though Jesus was standing by my bed. But if I'd have seen Jesus, I'd have gotten all scared and nervous and shook and blanched and barked or howled or wiggled or climbed under the bed. But no, he came in another form to give me a specific message. Hello. Here's what hope believes. Hope believes we're best friends. Free man hope. Oh, hope makes us free men. Jesus the free man. Let's say Jesus the free man. Oh, come on. We have a living hope. How can you lose hope if Jesus is your living hope and nothing can kill him? Oh, death did its worst. Hope wants to bring us into a place of rest. That was the whole idea of the bed. Rick talked about Cornelia last night, the Philadelphia Eagles hat and sweater. Hat covers our head. Hope protects our minds. That's what really covers us and keeps us in the midst of trial and turmoil is a living hope. Something on our minds. Hope is the helmet, it says, of salvation. And so we have this city of brotherly love. We have this love-based hope. We have this God of love, hope that covers our minds when circumstance says he's not love. Reality says he is. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Hope thrives in a community of love. Newly paved road. I'd had another dream. I don't guess I can. Well, yeah, I got plenty of time. Praise the Lord. You guys are so lucky. Say, I'm lucky. I, people get offended at that. So I'm blessed. So he was standing on a newly paved road. I'd had another dream. Before I started this little church I have now, I was repaving Remount Road, which is exit 8 off I-77. I was on one of the, you ever seen those big, um, what, do you, what do they call it? What do they make roads out of? Asphalt. One of the big asphalt machines. I was on this thing, driving this thing right down Remount Road, repaving it. Remount. If you mount up once, you mount up. If you go again, you, you remount. It was about Isaiah. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings. 
but sometimes you got to remount. God's calling me to pave a way for people to remount. Oh, you won't believe this, maybe. John 3, 8, Jesus says, everybody that's born of the Spirit are like the wind, and the characteristic the wind has is it goes where it wants to. He says, so is everybody born of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, you can go where you want to. What's the context? Accessing and perceiving the kingdom. If you're born of the Spirit, according to Jesus, you can go into that realm when you want to because you're like the wind. Where does the wind go? Where it wants to. Do you see it? No. You see what happens when it does. But Paul Keith's sitting right on the front row. He could go in the realm of the heavens. You wouldn't even see him leave if he wants to because the wind goes where it And people say, well, Ron, that's crazy. Nobody does that. I don't care what people do. I'm reading the Bible. Until Martin Luther, people didn't believe you could be justified by faith. He didn't come up. He didn't create that. He didn't make that up. That wasn't his idea. He read something God said, believed it, and began to experience it. I'm saying you can go into the heavenly realm when you want to based on the words of Jesus. And on and on. Third wagon was that wagon of hope. The fourth wagon was a wagon of provision. The fifth wagon was a new vision for the United States. I can't get into all this, but I felt like that wagon was typified by where Jacob and his family lived in Egypt. It was called Goshen. I believe America is going to have a Goshen era. Goshen means drawing near. We draw near to God, God will draw near to us, and our nation will change again. Politically, that's important. But even politics cannot make people better believers. We have to be so connected to the Lord that it affects our lives, affects the people around us. Actually, I've wondered this. People talk about America being a Christian nation. I wonder if we're actually pre-Christian instead of post-Christian. Isn't that a good little idea? Maybe, maybe we're pre, not post. Maybe what we were called to, we've never yet been before, although we have roots, although we have influences. Man, I hit three home runs in one game. And I never hit one before or, 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 or since. What, what does that mean? It means God, 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 God. Oh, the spirit of the age says, oh, no, no, no. Your best days are over, gone, kaput. Adios, amigos. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God, whose eyes on the sparrow. But God, who knows no limit. I had a major encounter with the emblem pie, 3.14. God told me one time, you're depleted. You need to eat some pie. 
And then when I realized pi, pi is eternal. It's about the circle. It's all kabrashen. Let me get this right. Relationship between the circumference and the radius of a circle. And no matter how big or how small the radius is, pi is still pi. It's still 3.14. In other words, it's unchangeable. We need to eat some of the unchangeable God. Pi has, they have matriculated it out to like 30 million decimal points. Guess what? Not done yet, still going. No pattern, no zero, ending it. It just uh, keeps on going. Oh, this is crazy. I love this, though. I was, uh, I, I got sick in 2015, and my wife said, would you please and I was waking her up at night. Would you please go to the doctor tomorrow? And I said, yes, ma'am. March 14th, 2015. Pi, 3.1415. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning, 926. And I'm sitting in the doctor's office. Do I know it's March 14th? No. Do I know what time it is? No. Do I care? No. I do not feel well. I'm there for help. And I'm sitting there. I, they put you through this computer and it tells you um, you have 45 minutes of agony before you're allowed in the doctor's room. That's what it tells you. It really says agony. You not done, Ruben. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my telephone. And I see this article, Pi Day. I thought, what's Pi Day? And it was, um, it says, today is Pi Day. I went, oh, look at there. March 14th, awesome. What does that mean to me? Nothing. MIT sends out acceptance letters to the next year's freshmen on Pi Day. Letters of acceptance on Pi Day because they're all into Pi because they're MIT. I'm into pie if it's coconut. <laughs> and I get 3.14 slices whenever I want it. <laughs> ah, that's pretty funny. Pie. So I'm reading this thing, and it says, this is an awesome day, blah, 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 blah. Then it says, they actually are going to mail the letters at 926 because there is a one there is a period of time between two seconds that accurately reflects pi to infinity. That happens once every hundred years. And I'm going, gee, isn't that interesting? I wonder when that is. Oh, 926. Oh, it's 924. 3, March 14th, 14th day of March, 2015, 3.1415, 926 in the morning. I'm sitting right there. I'm enjoying a moment, a second, that occurs only once every 100 years, and I did nothing to get there. 
It was a moment of acceptance. It was in a moment of eternity. It was a moment of stability. It was a moment of faithfulness. It represents all those things. That's what pie represents. The eternal God, the everlasting God, the accepting God, the loving God, the God who did not need my help to get me where he wanted me to be, even though you could only get there once every hundred years, and then you had to have it at the right second. What happened? Dumb as a brick. Dumb old Robin. Dumb as a brick. I'm going to the doctor. I'm going to sit in the chair. I'm going to get medicine. I'm going to look at it. You can be dumb as a brick. Hit three home runs in one game. I could have hit him with a ping pong paddle that day. Because God landed on me. He didn't even ask my permission. He said, hey, Robin, I think we're going to hit three home runs today. Don't try to mess it up. He didn't tell me. He said, I'm going to get you in the perfect place at the perfect time, and you could only be there one second in a hundred years. Do you think you could actually pull this off? No. Uh-uh. Well, see, that's all well and good for me to talk about. This ain't about me. I'm here talking to you. You understand what I'm saying? I am a token for you. A token is a visible representation of a larger promise for you. And the problem with the token is if you miss the token, you can miss the promise. But if you receive the token, you can receive the promise. Okay. Wagons. Why wagons? Well, to get the idea of being revived out of... Jacob and Joseph's life. I saw these wagons. They were old, rickety-looking wagons. And they had spoke wheels. Say spoke. Or you could say the wheels were spoken. What do you call an oak bucket? An oaken bucket. What do you call spoked wheels? Spoken. Here's what I believe we're going to pray for today. Criticism and a critical spirit. If, if, now you don't have to do this, and, and I don't, I'm not looking for numbers, I'm just looking for the right result for people God wants to help today, but if you have been criticized and you felt like it's affected you, and if you have inclinations at times to being critical, and you want to be delivered from that, why don't you stand up? I've been standing all morning. I got up early. It's a problem. I have that problem. But you don't, you don't have to get up for me. I want you to get up for you. I want you to get up for you. Spoken promises. This is spoken promise. Why don't you say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to ask you to say first, and then I'm going to ask you to say, Lord, I receive deliverance.
from criticism and the critical spirit. Now, before we say that, that's good. Thank you for being with me. You do a great job, by the way. Both of you, all of you. Thank you. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to... I, I just want to thank you, Lord. You're so good. Thank you, Jesus. You're just so good. Here you care about people. You want to deliver them. You want their identities to, uh, to be accurate. You want them to go the distance. So here you are. Father, you want to deliver us from criticism and the critical spirit. Holy Spirit, I can't, I can't do this for people, but I can bring them to the place where you will do it. So why don't we do this? Why don't we say, Lord, I'm asking you that you would deliver me from the effects of being criticized. Let's just sit right there a second. Let the Holy Ghost move and unravel. I, really, I do see the anointing on so many people's foreheads. The Lord's helping your minds right now. He's going to give you new perspectives of who you are. Father, in Jesus' name, I break off criticism off of everyone in this place. In the name of Jesus, I command that thing to turn around and go back. I command that illusion. I command that lie. I command that imposition to be broken in Jesus' name now. How many of you feel something? Let's just tell the Lord what we're feeling. Just begin to communicate. Tell the Lord what you're feeling. Just talk to Him about it just a little bit. There's no magic here. It's a relational deliverance from Jesus. feel like sitting you don't have to keep standing this is not about that it's about you getting released father I speak into areas of people's lives of confusion of fear of woundedness of depression of darkness of fear of confusion again Lord blow it away Lord you can blow it away blow it away Lord you can blow it away Blow it away, Lord. You can blow it away. Blow it away, Lord. You can blow it away. Wind of God. Blow it away. Wind of God. Fill us afresh. Wind of God. Come. Let's invite the wind of God to touch us. Just give him a personal invitation. I would imagine the Lord may have identified to you without me saying anything about it. 
people you've been critical of. Let's pray this together. Father, deliver me from the critical spirit. Father, deliver me from my concept of what justice is against people. And I choose to release them. I make that choice feeling notwithstanding. I choose to release them. Lord, give me your heart. Give me your heart. Lord, yes, give me your heart. I have some folks here that'll, if you come on up, if you want prayer, come on up. We're going to maybe worship a little and uh, lay hands on people and just agree with what the Lord's doing this morning or you're, or you're, uh, I guess that's it, or you're free to go if you're done or go to the bookstore and buy all Paul Key stuff and some of mine. But if you want to, to come up, Mark, you want to come? Cody, 